How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Call me the king. Tonight, we will be partaking of a liquid repast as we wind our way up the Golden Mile, commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, then on to the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same, all before the last bittersweet pint and the most fateful terminus, the world's end. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will, in truth, be blind, drunk, or, well, maybe just me. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me on this epic movie crawl is Mike. Fuck a doodle do. Next up. James was the baby of the group. He wasn't the kind of kid we'd usually hang out with, but he's good for a laugh. And he was absolutely minted. I, I was up... savagely beaten. <laughs> I had to look up minted after watching this movie because I didn't know what that meant. Makes perfect sense in retrospect. Anyways, Alex fancies himself as a bit of a player, but really he's all mouth. We call him MB because he has a birthmark on his face that's shaped like a bat. He loves it. Here's the thing, Cody. You've actually been barred from doing commentaries for movies, so I'm going to have to revoke your license. <laughs> because it was just slowly edging me out of all of the podcasts. Oh, my dream. <laughs> just like a word or two, and then I'd vanish. Anyways, welcome to Box Office Pulp, folks. This is your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Today, we have on tap a commentary for Edgar Wright's final entry in his Cornetto trilogy, The World's End. Yeah, because screw doing the first two movies in the series. We go straight for the good stuff. Yeah, you work your way backwards. We go straight for the depression. That's the bop in the movie way. Mm-hmm. That's the real nougat. Well, here's why I wanted to do this. It's a very uh, sobering realization I had, which is box office pulp is our own personal world's end, and Cody is Gary King. <laughs> There's like every episode, it's just Cody going, come on, guys. Let's do box office pulp again. It'll be like old times. <laughs> it will be like old times. Oh, like, no, Cody, no. You need help. And then the the plot of the world's end happens to us in the form of a podcast. Weirdly, Rosalind Pike is completely unchanged, but still involved. And for some reason, Mike completely lied about his mom being dead. We're all really mad at him. True. 
Yeah, I do feel like I'm heading in a lot of those places. Anyways, if you're listening to this, Baby Driver, right's newest movie, is already out in theaters. I saw it yesterday. I can 100% recommend it. And if you don't like it, then fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah strong opinions. No, you can like what you like. That's okay. You can, you can be wrong. That's cool, too. Robble, but, robble, mom. Robble, robble. Robble, robble, Cody. Uh, move the mic closer to you. Uh, I will put it in my mouth. Boo this man! Boo! My favorite joke from Halfback. Okay, is that any better? Yeah. Cool. Because it doesn't actually reach any closer to me, so I was hoping that was good. I should have a boom arm like me. I do have a boom arm. Yeah, fuck you, then. Mine's nicer. <laughs> Yours is apparently longer. Juices. You poured the measure of these juices. <laughs> Come on my face. <laughs> Delightful. Isolate that. <laughs> Enhance. <laughs> I don't know why. I just imagine. I just imagine um, Deckard's enhancing that line, looking intently at the screen. Is the wavelength on the screen? Mm. Oh, jazz. <laughs> <laughs> the world's end. But the world's end. So what we're going to do, guys, is. Like in our other commentaries, we're going to actually play the movie. We're going to watch it. We're going to comment on it. You are you are welcome to do the same in your house. You can listen to us without the commentary. We're about the same either way, I would say. But that's on you. Wait, you can listen to us without the commentary? That means just not listening to us. <laughs> no, that's it's, what he meant. That's that's entirely what he meant. You can listen to I, us in your head. And yeah. you know what? I agree with him. Just get out while you can. I hope I hope we've invaded the minds of our fans enough where they just hear us whenever they're not listening to the show. I don't want to drive anyone to suicide. Guys, if there's anybody listening to this, A, you're the revolution. B, if you sometimes fantasize about our voices rattling around your brain, maybe when you're taking a shower, possibly maybe when you're trying to interact with your dying grandmother who has Alzheimer's, and all you can hear is Cody making a juice joke. Then please tell us at on Twitter at box office pulp. Self promotion. Self promotion. Beautiful. That's all we needed to do to kick the show off. So if you're ready to join us, folks, we've got the video queued up. I hope you can put the Blu-ray in right now and play along with us. James, do you want to count us down? I'm playing, so no, I will count us down. Mike, do you want to count us down? <laughs> hey, I, I, no, it's it's nice that Cody forgets these things. It's like person who can who literally physically can't press play. Can you count us down? So the other person has to guess the exact time. The work is off immediately. Doesn't that seem fun? <laughs> this is where everybody gets to participate. James, you get to count. Mike, you get to press things, and we all get to watch. MB, you get to put out the fires. <laughs> oh boy. And I get to watch the chaos. I'm like the bad guy from the film Equilibrium. You mean books? Anyway. Books are clearly the bad guy in that film. Books are always the bad guy. Have you seen Harry Potter? That's very true. One, two, three. <laughs> you did it, Mike. You did it. Yeah, so Mike just had to... Press play a second time because he fucked it up the first I time. I didn't fuck it up. You guys made me redo it. Like, I press play on two different things. They were both completely lined up. You guys thought it was fucked up. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. <laughs>
So the world's end. I don't have a good segue here. I just felt like saying the title because the working title appeared on the screen. So. I have never been able to walk into a bar and immediately grab beer. <laughs> I do like how that's a recurring thing in this movie, just video game beer waiting to be grabbed. <laughs> This is a weird question to start off the commentary with, but when you were kids, what did you imagine beer tasted like? Awful. Like, I, I, some sort of weird moldy bread in my mind. I think, uh, like, as a kid, did your parents ever be like, hey, you want to try some beer? And then you smelled it, and you're like, no, this is garbage, and they would laugh? Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think everyone's had that experience. I don't know. It's just... Well, here's the thing. Beer is bad. It's like, there's some good alcohol in, out there, but no, beer is not meant for human consumption. <laughs> it's oh, just, it gets you there. drunk, so everyone has gaslighted themselves into thinking that beer tastes good as a civilization. There's a lot of bad beer out there, I will give you that, but I think there is some delicious beer. And maybe it's just an acquired taste, maybe I'm just hooked on getting fucked up, I don't know. Well, but I would say is- there's good beer. What is an acquired taste if not just slowly convincing yourself that something shitty tastes good? <laughs> like horseradish. People at home don't know this, but James has actually traveled the world tasting every kind of beer. He's an authority on the subject. That was he my own the personal golden mile. Does everyone have like a favorite type of beer? Do we have someone who's like, oh, I'm a Saison guy. I'm a, I'm a, like a lager guy. I prefer sours. You're talking to the wrong group. We're all straight edge. I figured. I figured. James is high. <laughs> Fun fact. I am not high. I sobered up several hours ago because I take this show serious. MB's on black tar heroin. <laughs> I mean, I always am, so that's just no surprise there. I, I, uh, I myself have gone up to 19 grams of sugar today. Ooh. Incredible. Okay, I'm really glad I get to tell this story for this movie, but my birthday party was yesterday. I just did some all thing at a restaurant with some family members. And on the way out, a member of my family, who will remain unnamed, uh, hands me this beautiful, like, ornate silver box with, like, a little bit of gold twine tying it shut and says... Open that whenever you get home. I did, and inside this box, this large box, was the biggest joint I've ever seen. <laughs> and next to it, a red lighter, which w- looked really, really small in the box. Like, it's kind of, it's almost an optical illusion, because the, the joint is comically small in the box, but when you look at the joint by joint standards, it's huge. So it's like a it's it's like a visual pun or something. <laughs> and I just loved this weird white trash David Lynch moment I had there. I like how uh we've done such a terrible job with this commentary already. We've completely skipped the opening, which in true Edgar Wright fashion outlines everything that will happen in the rest of the film. Just like the story I just told. Yeah, what? It was also a great nineties movie we just saw. <laughs> what I, so what if, I love is like you, oh go ahead 
I was just going to say, what I love is, like, Wright is so insanely obsessed with keeping that trope up with, I mean, he does that with a lot of his movies, but with this one specifically, it's built into the actual bar's names. Like, you cannot get more literal with that trope than that. Oh, the foreshadowing is perfect, but it just shows how well he has everything planned. I think a lot of a lot of directors kind of make the movie in the edit. For Edgar Wright, the film is already complete in his head, and he's just filming it to make it real. Like, he just has to reenact what's in his brain step by step. Well, it's fascinating. In the commentary, Peg asks Wright what his obsession with twins in all of his movies is. And the only way he can really phrase it is, well, I've got an obsession with symmetry, don't I? It's like, yeah, (laughs) his entire career has been one monument to symmetry. Well, in every one of these films, too, like all the movements we're going through right now will be repeated at the end of the film with characters in new positions, but still acting out more or less the same. Like slight tweaks, but everything is just basically mirrored at the end. So you get this nice point A to point B to point C, and A and C are very close, but just flop slightly. And this is something I've come to love so much about Wright's movies, which is they're puzzle boxes, but the puzzle pieces are jokes. And I can't think of, like, any other artist who has been able to pull something like that off. Especially... Like a movie like Hot Fuzz, which I think may have the world records for the most jokes in a single movie. And half of those existing jokes are callbacks to other jokes that have happened, or call forwards to jokes from the rest of the movie. That's not that going to make sense until you watch it another time. <laughs> that is, he's the master of making movies you have to watch at least twice to get a handle on all the jokes that are happening. Oh, something I didn't even notice until it was pointed out in the commentary. Uh, Later on, whenever Peg makes the joke that uh, he robbed Peter but still has to pay Paul, at the end of the movie, Nick Frost brings up that Paul was one of the people who did it. (laughs) So that's another Aaron A. Aronson joke that doesn't make sense until you watch them backwards. (laughs) Or uh, just small little details going along with the foreshadowing. I didn't pick this up, which is really obvious in retrospect, but all the character names are kind of connected to royalty in some way. Like, you've got Gary King, Andy Knightley, Peter's pa- uh, Peter Page, Stephen Prince, and Oliver Chamberlain. So, like, they're all various degrees of royalty and prestige. Well, it's, it's, well, it's, it's like make- a great medieval story. Like, he's the king getting everyone back together for one last adventure, except it's hor- horrible. <laughs> and it's also brilliant because that sets up one huge, subtle joke in the middle of the film where they uh, get to one of the pubs and Rosamund Pike's character first comes into frame. All of them stand except for Gary King because traditionally all of the king's court stands except the king. So he's setting that up to pay off something very subtle and then also pay off something in a long game too. Like Wright is one of the only people who makes films, who jokes in th- in three dimensions. I know. Well, that's what that I is a about, right. great way to say that. Wright isn't so much a film director as a pop artist. Oh, very much so. Like, like what James was talking about earlier with him having an obsession with symmetry, like, 
I feel like, like, I've had a theory for a long time that symmetry is kind of the key to perfecting film and narrative language. And that's why Wright is such an appealing director, writer, filmmaker, like, what have you. He manages to take that obsession with symmetry, and he basically boils it down to a cohesive front-to-back-end experience as a film. Like, he is one of the tightest in terms of editing, in terms of writing, in terms of directing, like everything that he has a personal hand in, it's a statement. It's it's something where it's like, it's a statement, but it's like a complete sentence statement. It's a statement where you can like look at it and it's like, okay, this doesn't feel like something that was too long, too short, too whatever. It's the perfect length every time. It's the perfect like amount. It has this tone to it. It's like... It's it's so genius the way he crafts these movies, and I, I'll, I'll say that like even saying that like my true like my preference for uh, his actual films actually differs from most people. Like most people consider like Shaun of the Dead like the the best that he's ever done, or Hot Fuzz like sometimes gets the credit. My favorite is actually Hot Fuzz. This is actually my second favorite, and then I don't know where exactly Scott Pilgrim and uh, Shaun of the Dead fit in there, but it's just so interesting. Like you get the way you can look at his body of work. It's so fascinating that World's End is his most rough around the edges movie, and it's perfect. Like <laughs> even when Wright goes off the rails and makes something weird and unexpected and not user friendly, it's a perfectly crafted bit of machinery. And to, to piggy off the idea of the craft here, if you had the Blu-ray, there's like three different commentaries provided on the movie. And one of them is Edgar Wright talking to Bill Pope, the cinematographer. And they mentioned in these scenes, they were so difficult because Edgar Wright doesn't want to repeat shots. Like throughout the movie, he doesn't want to use the same shot set up twice if he can avoid it. Or unless it's making a specific purpose, like it's there to show something that happened earlier to mimic it. Which for Bill Pope is very tough because there's only so many ways you can film two people having a conversation. So you have to find clever little ways to do something different with the camera or to place people because, you know, you're mostly trying to get back to back so they can have a conversation and you can't just do it the normal way where, okay, here's position A, here's position B, flip flop back and forth like an interview. Writes that into detail. We're like, nope, we're not going to take the easy way out here. Each shot needs to be its own specific story. And I love how that obsession means that Wright manages to avoid what, for my money, is the single greatest sin of modern movie making. Shot, reverse shot. Oh, yeah. And shot, reverse shot can be brilliant. Like, just look at any Coen Brothers movie. But that has become the biggest crutch. And nothing will take me out of a movie faster than just lazy... This character in a close-up. Reverse shot of this character in close-up. No continuity between them. It makes it really easy to ADR them, though. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that that sort of methodology to making films also creates this freneticism to just the language that, that Reich's films have, because they're very just like snap, 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 in terms of like... Every single scene just has this pace about it that at, at the same time feels fast, but at the same time doesn't feel like it's losing you or you have to keep up with it. No. Like, yeah, it's not it's, rushed. 
it's amazingly adept in like terms of like its speed, but at the same time, it's just like okay, you are there, you are going the same speed that the movie is going. You're just experiencing this rush, this exhilarating like rush of something. Well, that's something that actually fascinates me about Worlds, and it's the very first thing that I really picked up on watching this movie, and it was about at this point that. While this still very much has the Edgar Wright pace, this is so deliberately low tempo compared to any of his other movies, especially in the beginning. Especially coming off of stuff like Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim, which are rapid fire, joke, 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 inside of a joke, 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 joke movies. This, while still rapid fire, has... Probably the most traditionally cinematic back and forth of his catalog. And I feel like that's very, very deliberate. Oh yeah, I, I definitely agree. And also, I feel like that's the key to its place in the Coronado Netto trilogy because the way I feel about Shaun of the Dead is that it's sort of the beginning of a life in terms of okay, you start off slow and you start to build and build and build until you've gone into full blown like insanity. Hot Fuzz is the absolute insanity just going into its apex. And then this is just winding down off of insanity and just kind of slowly boiling down into something more real. Where it's like, it's almost like a complete full arc, well, but not in terms of like a character arc, in terms of like, like an arc, like an actual arc. Well, this is the Edgar Wright aesthetic. Pardon? Reaching middle age. <laughs> like, okay, we can't hop over the fences anymore. Uh, you broke it. No, I was just saying... Yes, hello. I can hear you. you hear me? I was just saying, I this, is, this is the uh, Edgar Wright aesthetic, reaching middle age. I'm starting to say, okay, we can't hop over the fences anymore. <laughs> let's, let's just slow down a little bit. Well, I, I, I like the complexity actually bakes into this. On surface, I would want to agree with you, but we have the other four characters who aren't Gary King who all seem somewhat happy on the surface with their lives, but they agree to come on this journey. And if you look closely at what they're doing, none of them seem super pleased with where they're at besides maybe Oliver. Like, it's just they're willing to compromise on their lives to get financial security but none of them seem super, super happy with where they're at, and they're willing to go along with this because it's a bit of a risk, even if they protest the entire time. And by the end of the movie, they're in totally different places. So I, I don't know if it's a the idea you have to refute, you know, in your 40s being a different person. Well, the film doesn't really land on one side or the other. It's going for something a little bit more complex, an idea. Because it's, yeah, Gary is so evilly wrong and he's basically on a suicide run throughout the movie yeah with this the rapture in his past self but the other guys they're more hiding their stunted growth like it's the idea of i mean it's the movies the film is individual individuality versus conformism which is actually most of Wright's films in in certain ways but for the rest of the guys they're more just using the um, the blanket of adulthood to hide 
you know, their own kind of like, this is just what you're supposed to do. So we're not ourselves anymore. Gary, at least, is true to himself, but still wrong. <laughs> I also like throughout the movie, the guys make complaints say, about gentrification. Uh, and, and even though they're complaining about the Starbucking of certain areas, you can see in this scene right now, they're all sitting down having what appears to be Starbucks or some chain coffee. So they're guys who complain about this stuff, but they still buy into it. Yeah. Well, I think that's something like very elemental to the philosophy of the movie. The idea of the appearance of decency and civility just being skin deep. Just everything being Starbucks. As it's repeated throughout the movie. Well, I also think, like, there's kind of a, a flip side to that, which kind of feeds into what Mike was saying about the film not really choosing a side. Where, on one hand, yeah, th- that does happen, and all that kind of comes to a head, but at the, at the end of the movie, there's also kind of a flip where Wright does something completely unexpected by having each of the guys end up in this new place and this new phase of their lives. But like, well, there's a real sereneness and calmness to like, like for instance, uh, Steven ends up with his dream girl. Like Oliver ends up in a decidedly worse place, but at the same time, he's, he's kind of making do with what he has. Peter has almost become the better version of himself. And, like, Andy is just kind of like this wise old sage, but Gary gets rewarded for being who he was and gets a more awesome version of his life that he, that he gets to relive over and over again. So it's like, it's, at the same time, it's like, it's kind of rewarding both sides of it. Well, it might not even be a reward. Like, okay, so he's making healthier choices where he's not after alcohol and suicide. Or is he? Because he's still starting bar fights at the end of the film. He's he's always that outsider who's trying to fight his way against everything else. Well, I can't think I can't think what they're going for, like with specifically that ending and him, you know, leading a blank a band of blanks around as it's all of the nasty, destructive stuff about Gary being recontextualized. Like, it's uh, all the stuff that hurt people being kind of, sort of, used for good. Like, instead of Gary alienating himself from society, he's choosing to live with people who society has alienated yeah. and using his experience to help them. Very much so. <laughs> and for a movie that's about the individual versus the conglomerate, it's kind of funny that... Gary becomes a champion for the individual, but in the end, the last shot of it is is him forsaking being selfish and helping out a larger group besides himself. Yeah, which is weird because it's kind of having your cake and eating it too. Like it focuses on both sides and finds a, a compromise between them in a way. Well, Gary's big thing isn't really so much like his weird obsessions throughout the movie isn't really about himself. It's more about his group. Like, he wants that back. That's just as much of his addiction as the drugs and alcohol. Well, he's willing to manipulate all of them, so he doesn't really care about their feelings. He just wants his own enjoyment to be fulfilled. He wants the old gang back, because that's the last time he had a super awesome time. Yeah. Well, at, at the 
the same time, though, he cares about who they were. He doesn't care about who they are. Yeah. Like, he doesn't, yeah. He doesn't yeah. care about who they've become. And that's that's what I think is so interesting about the way that his story ends is that I think with Gary, it's not really so much saying that, okay, now he's sticking up for the little guy, even though that is there. I think that's honestly just a consequence of what happened and not really something that he actively chooses. I feel like what he basically says is, yeah, this is what I wanted, but this is this makes me happy. This makes me complete. I'm just being selfish for it, and I don't care about the consequences because literally the world ended. So let's just go with it. Like his entire, I think this entire character arc in this movie is him kind of just feeding into his own selfishness and he finally finds a way to where it it isn't a hindrance on his own life because it's not self-destructive. Yeah, exactly. Because it's interesting. With the way the film ends, it's kind of an extreme version of showing the end of Gary's arc where, yeah, uh, it goes very sci-fi by literally ending the world to show Gary content and happy and moving on in a world where he would more rationally should be more nostalgic for, oh, when times were better, when the world wasn't over. But he's actually much more content, and this is the place he stopped drinking. And like, even then, like thing. Andy, ends up on the opposite end. He doesn't show nostalgia until the world's over, and it's, you know, it takes the end of the world for him to basically crack and be like, yeah, okay, maybe he was right about that one aspect a little bit. Yeah. And this fascinates me. Oliver is perfect. Like when you really look at his arc in the movie, like even whenever he's replaced with a blank, he acts exactly the same. <laughs> so Oliver's the one person who is just perfectly content being Oliver. Even in the flashback, he just acts like Oliver. So like he is unchanging as the mountains. <laughs> and he's the one person in the apocalypse who just does exactly what he did before. He's slightly cheerier in the apocalypse, actually, which is weird. Or as a robot, I should say. But uh, anyways, we're at the first bar, the first post, which signifies they're just at the first bar. However, it's it's kind of fun because they mentioned this used to be a post office that was transformed into a bar. And it's surprising the number of places I've been to where they were repurposed into bars. Like uh, in my hometown, there's a library that was repurposed into a pizzeria slash bar. Um, out east, I remember stopping at a place that's a bank that was transformed into a bar. I don't know what it is, but when an institution fails, you can always pick it up and turn it into a bar. I don't, I don't know why that Unless is. Unless it's but a grocery it store, then it can becomes a church. Ah, well, yes. Well, well, that's a town's escape hatch. If the <laughs> chips are down, we got a new bar. New bar. And Here, here's here's what I want to see. I want to see a department store like a Kmart or a Target <laughs> turned into a bar. Those turn into car dealerships. But well, one, one other thing to point out here, and I'm sorry to cut you off. In the background, you'll see chalkboards, like the fake chalkboards that are everywhere. Like if you ever walk into an Applebee's or a Chili's or any of those kind of chain restaurants, you always see these fake chalkboard signs. Like someone actually was there with chalk writing the specials, but they're just printed. And that's always bothered me because it's trying to be a facsimile for something real and folksy and charming and individual and real. And it's just mass marketed somewhere else and sold in you know, giant bulk packages. I was so hoping you were going to get indignant about the chalk industry. I do. The chalk bothers me because I see it so often. And uh, I, 
to get personal with the viewers at home. I recently just moved from a small town to Minneapolis. It's a big place, and I was thinking, well, there should be everything here. And it's very odd, because trying to find a local bar to call, like, my bar, it's tough. Like, every place I go to is a chain bar that looks like this kind of, well, not this particular setup, but it's just homogenized. It's the same in every single place you can go to. Even the cool ones, I realize, like, oh, shit, there's eight more of these in the city, and they're all the same. Well, and they it's it's the just weird thing. Well, it's the same thing down here in, like, the small town south. Like, you'd think there would just be mom-and-pop restaurants everywhere because this is the last bastion of that sort of thing. And No, there's literally just Burger King. Just a hundred Burger Kings. In my smaller town, I was able to find a couple of places that I liked. Actually, I should take that back. The places I liked were chains. They were just small chains. And the places that were individual bars, there's one called Denmar. You can find it in Wausau. Like, I went there to party for New Year's Eve last year, and the next day, someone, they found someone dead in the toilet. Like, it's, that kind of place, like, they literally, like, they found someone who overdosed and died on the toilet the next day. And it's just that kind of bar, like, like the the scuzzy local bars are just that, like, these are dives. And at least the chains are nice, even if they're all the same. Uh, anyways, we have just approached the second bar, and I have up like a fact sheet talking about each bar. Uh, so I want to bring this up because I find this fascinating. Bar names to me are just fascinating. Uh, this is the old familiar, which the joke is it's exactly the same as the first post, which goes what into I, what we were just discussing. What I love is the really subtle joke that okay, this is the one that's obviously just the first bar. Then throughout the rest of the movie, all of the signs are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and they, they offer the same went, taps. And they have the patrons doing the exact same body language, timed perfectly. Oh, yeah. Uh, one thing you guys probably don't care because you're not beer drinkers, but in the world of craft brewing, there's uh-huh. a lot of small microbreweries that are trying to make their own stuff. However, they're in kind of a David and Goliath battle because there's... Uh, you know, the Millers and the Coors and all those guys out there who have a huge market share. You know, you go to a gas station, you're not going to necessarily find Nuclearis, but you're going to be able to find uh, a high life. And they kind of control everything. And they actually buy out smaller breweries and continue making them under their old names to kind of trick people. Like, oh, Ronnie Kugels, okay, that's a local. Well, no, that's actually owned by Miller now or whoever. I actually do know a little bit about this, because though I don't drink, the weirdness of all this has always fascinated me. It's like, there's there's really no uh, League of Craft Beers out there labeling, like, deciding which is authentic craft and which isn't. So a lot of big companies can just say, here's our craft beer yeah, from Buttfuck, Arkansas, and it, you you can't do anything about that. Yeah, I, I actually saw a news story yesterday that there's going to be, like, a seal of approval between, like, a craft brewer's union that they're going to put out for breweries that they deem to be, you know, craft breweries. But I don't know how far that'll go. You know, that'll probably be, like, a couple of breweries and no one will pay attention. Well, but I, it, I just... it's such a strange industry where it's all kind of secretly controlled by, like, two companies. And it's all just the veneer of something. 
Yeah, like, where I get a little bit of Schadenfreude in there because the people that are super snobby and elitist about their craft beers, it's like you realize you're you're like the dude who buys the artisan tortillas at Walmart. Like at a certain point, it's just a thing on the package. It's unfortunately true. Uh, I mean, and you can find craft breweries out there that are truly craft. Like there's just some really small deal. Like there's ten people on a rented out strip mall store basically producing stuff on their own. That was pretty cool. I love it when people do their own thing as a hobby and basically turn it into their own craft. You can find those, but they're not all over the place. You're not going to be able to get them coast to coast. I miss Oso, but that's just how life is. It's unfortunate, but you can't really fight City Hall. I like how tonally appropriate it is for this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now this is a a, uh, subplot in this movie that fascinates me because this is such a reverse of every big chill the old friends get together story because there's always that couple it's like oh remember when we hooked up at the senior prom that was the most important thing that ever happened we got to rekindle that and it always happens i just love seeing a woman in one of these movies say like no, you're like one of seven dudes I fucked in high school. I barely remember you. <laughs> but in Gary King's mind, it's still exactly like you described. It was the most important thing in his life, so he always remembers it. And I also like the fact that in the end of the movie, the main guy does not just end up with the girl automatically because he's the main guy. His character flaws get the best of him, and she's like, you're a nice guy, but there's no way I would ever date you. Also, since... I had no entry point into it. I was, I'm just going to reveal the joke that I had planned for Rosamund Pike's entry, which is, ah, oh god, it's the gun girl. <laughs> so anyway, that movie just ruined, that movie just ruined Rosamund Pike forever. She's oh, like my Anthony bad. Hopkins my, now. Yeah, my balls shrivel into my, into my body because I'm like, oh god, please don't, don't in, entrap me into that web of lies and deceit. She's actress. He's an American treasure. <laughs> Uh, also, we're now in uh, the famous cock, which, of course, refers to Gary because he was once kicked out of this bar. Not a whole lot of symbolism, but kind of a funny joke because they're basically it, calling him a dick. I thought it was referring to David Bradley there. I love David. There's there history about that cock. David, comedy David Bradley always makes me happy. I have to say, I think my favorite joke in any Edgar Wright movie, maybe my favorite joke in cinema now, is him... Pulling a crazy straw off camera <laughs> like a cartoon character and saying, Not so crazy now, is it? <laughs> what a ridiculous joke that is. I love it so much. I love it. It's in this movie. Uh, that's just and a hot fuzz joke lying in the middle of this so really serious, sobering film. Also, uh, also, can I just say how genius it is that Gary finds three, like, disposed of cups, essentially, with, with just varying amounts of alcohol in them. If you look at them closely, they all amount to one full glass, so he's technically still in it's the true. game. That's what I love about the subtleness of that. Like, he finds the perfect amount of alcohol for it to still count. <laughs> so, uh... This is the cross-hands bar, which, spoilers, it's the cross-hands because they cross-hands with blanks for the first time. Uh, but... In my experience, this movie is really personal to me because uh, where I went to college is a big party town. 
And, you know, you develop so many fond, nostalgic memories for the place you used to go out and party and do all the stuff Gary King did at the start of the film. And then you get older and you realize it's really awkward to go back there and realize everyone's like eight years younger than you and you don't have a place to stay for the night. So you can't get that drunk because you, you have to drive home. So it's, it's just like I connect to it on that level. But <laughs> where he goes out and he finds three beers to drink so he can technically mark that bar off the menu. I've had a very similar experience with burritos. <laughs> For some reason, oh, the story's amazing already. Uh, I, I pledged once when I was in Eau Claire visiting a friend that I just only wanted burritos because there is a Bracho's burrito restaurant open till 4 a.m. on Water Street in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And after the bars close at 2 a.m., everyone walks into Bracho's and just eats burritos at 3 in the morning. And it was my favorite experience of college, just getting drunk and going there and getting a burrito at 3 a.m. So one day, I was drunk at 3 a.m. eating a burrito at Bracho's, and I decided, the rest of today, I'm eating nothing but burritos. And by God, I made that dream come true, and I wasn't going to skip out, because, like, a burrito's a full meal. Like, you can eat a burrito and be good for, like, a day. I No, I wasn't calling, I wasn't calling it good. Lame-ass had, burritos are you eating? I had a, <laughs> I had a burrito at 3 a.m., Stumbled back to my buddy's place, fell asleep at his apartment, woke up, went down to a place called Nucleus, had a breakfast burrito uh, at 8 a.m. <laughs> then another friend said, hey, Taco Bell is open and I want to try their breakfast menu. And I walked there and had another breakfast burrito two hours later. You had an unnecessarily second breakfast burrito. Uh, I'm like a hobbit. I had to have all the burritos and breakfasts. Uh, then for lunch, I went to... I think Barachos again, like sober, had a burrito, went out partying, and then there's a place called the Burrito Express in town across the street from the Barachos that also serves tacos and whatnot. But I got a giant, like, foot-long burrito there to end the evening. And if I remember right, I think I was drunk enough where, again, at 3 a.m. the next day, I had a burrito at Barachos to end the evening and then didn't eat burritos again for, like, another four weeks. But I, honestly, I look back and it's like the proudest accomplishment of my life. I said I was going to eat nothing but burritos for a day, and I went and I had four burritos in one day. <laughs> that is kind of impressive. Like, that that was the day you altered your reality to fit felt, your will. I felt like a king. Like, it, only was... a king eats burritos every two hours. <laughs> just you and King Henry VIII. There are so many amazing quotes that have just been said in the last two minutes by Cody. I just want to, like... Go, go you, man. That was that was an honest to god experience. I had no clear, and that was one of the more savory ones. Like I got into some, uh, like not as cool shit, where you're basically a drunk asshole. But the burrito story, always, I'm so proud of, and I'm nostalgic. I would go back to Eau Claire to repeat the burrito experience, and I would end up in this kind of scenario. Only there wouldn't be robots; there'd just be pissed off twenty year olds. Well, that's better than you breaking into a house, which you just casually revealed to us once. Um, yeah. Also, don't forget I stole a bottle of their liquor. liquor. Yeah, don't say that on mic. Let's move on. <laughs> One time I killed a drug dealer. <laughs> and then I ate a burrito. And then there was a burrito. What a strange <laughs> film analysis commentary this is. It started this is rocky. It I, I feel like it's very appropriate, because Cody, as I stated at the beginning of this commentary, is in the mindset of Gary King. Yeah. It's, it's very He's close. He's a window into this world. Uh, for a much more Gary King story, 
one time I got drunk and tried to separate from a group of friends and they tried to haul me back in because they wanted to get me somewhere safe and I ended up fighting them. So it was me against like three of my friends trying to haul me in and he had to like sit on my chest at one point to get me to stop from going anywhere. But during this fight, I threw him into a window and broke it. And then he just, he had to sit on me and get me to calm down so he could drag me back to someone's apartment and get me to cool off. And it was very much like the Gary King moment at the end where he decides, you know, he'd much rather go to the next bar to drink while Andy's trying to stop him. God, you had problems before you found Legos. <sighs> They're the only thing keeping me attached to this world. <laughs> attached with that rope of Legos. I'm with you. I did just build the uh, collector's edition of the Slave 1, and that motherfucker is gigantic and beautiful. <laughs> You had to bring up Legos, didn't you? I didn't. James did. I'm I'm talking to James. Okay. <laughs> you also, know we don't say the L word. I just want to say, <clears throat> I've totally been in this situation before. The awkward bathroom talk? No, where I've seen teenagers and had that moment of like, uh, I wish I was hanging out with them. <laughs> and it really is a rock bottom moment. It's, oh, it's yeah. very awkward. Do you ever have like, a moment in your you... head? Well, in your head, you still think, "Oh no, I'm their age," and then you oh. have to realize, "Oh no, I'm almost 30. Yeah, yeah, I'm an old person. They don't like me. Have you ever had that experience though, where you walk into a place you were before and realize like something you did is still impacted on the building? No, I'm a ghost. Ah, I mean, like anything. Like uh, there's one bar back in Eau Claire where everyone just kind of scratches their names or letters or initials or whatever into the timbers of the building. Like, the entire thing is just covered in little scratch marks now. So it's kind of fun when you go back there and you sit down and you realize, like, oh, shit, if you look in this back corner over to the left, right around here, and yeah, there's my name. Like, years later, and it's just still there. It's kind of cool. I have absolutely no stories like that. My life is one long monument to impermanence. Ah. I've only ever pissed on buildings, and that usually doesn't last too long. Well, I mean, we've all done that, but I mean, you, you don't scratch buildings anyway. It's not a fucking contest, Cody. You don't have any, like, broken mirrors? It's not a permanence uh, contest. My <laughs> urine's better than yours anyway. You don't have any, like, broken mirrors, or like, I did that, and then you walk away proudly, realizing you're a vandal? You know what? I blew up a building once. There. Ooh, that sounds like a great story. I was, about to, say, I was about to say, this is where MB reveals that his name is etched on the moon next to Richard M. Nixon. <laughs> I'll outlive you all. I thought you were going to go with this where MB reveals that he's the one who set off that World Trade Center bomb in the 90s. Oh, he's the one who burned down the White City. Also, before we get away from this, rewatching this for the commentary uh, to prepare, did you guys have the same experience that I did where as soon as the fight started, you said to yourself, Oh, yes, yeah, it's a sci-fi movie. Because I got so <laughs> into it, I just forgot that this wasn't a Lawrence Kasdan friends get together and talk about their life movie. I've been down for that movie, too, but it's a fun twist all of a sudden that now there are robots. That's the brilliance of it, is Wright doesn't really treat this as the film. He treats it more of as like, anyway, we're changing the structure of the film now? The fun thing, if you go back and watch, though, when they first get to New, uh, Newtown Hayden, um... Like, uh, all the people that are giving him weird looks and walking in sync, like, there's little hints throughout the whole thing, so it doesn't feel as abrupt. It's very well done. I mean, even stuff to, like, where the color code is, to where, like, all of the blanks were either green or blue, and 
that's where you get Oliver being foreshadowed as a blank because he, he wears blue. And it's also like to, to speak on James's point, this is actually um, my second viewing of the movie because I saw the movie for the first time yesterday because we were playing the commentary. And I wanted to see it at least once before I actually watched it. I knew about the alien subplot. I mean, it's, it's not like I went in completely blind and all of a sudden there were aliens and I didn't know what to do and ah, but um, in watching it, there is a little bit of that aspect of where it's like, oh yeah, there's there's a sci-fi element to this. There's there's <laughs> totally like there's going to be fights and stuff. I didn't like it. It kind of took me a second. It, there is a readjustment period there that I think it just kind of happens because. This is kind of the most brilliant, I like the most brilliant uh, retelling of an invasion of the body snatchers type of trope, <laughs> because know, it's just, it's just it's there partially in the movie. I just want to add, MB watched this at two a.m. or as Cody likes to call it, burrito o'clock. It's burrito time. Not quite. I mean, this is when you're finishing up your last dance at Sheenan's. Uh, you've stopped grinding on that one girl, and you realize you don't want to take her home because you want to be alone. And then you <laughs> just walk away to your here's burrito. The, here's the thing. I wasn't eating a burrito. I really wish I was now because that would have made the story way better. It does. Oh, man. There's so many times in your life. A burrito enhances everything. At 2 a.m., a burrito makes things better. Okay, a couple things. One, uh, we were talking about colors. If you pay attention to the colors, I, I love the the focus here. Oliver's wearing a lot of blue. Like you said, the blanks all end up being blue. Well, there you go with Oliver. Uh, two. I think I said two points. I had three. Two. Jody's drunk. Not, no, not even close yet. I'm only on the second beer. Uh, two. The special effects in this movie really, for a low-budget film, are fantastic. The head replacement stuff, you would assume they would do that with like a green screen. I was just fascinated to find out watching the special features they just CGI'd over the guy's head and just added in that blank head. And three, the practical effects they blend into this are also simple but amazing. Uh, they would make heads out of wax and fill them with blue paint, essentially, and then leave them in a freezer. So when they hit the heads, they'd be brittle and smash easier. But it works so well on screen, it really makes just a distinct effect that you don't get really in any other movies. A simple but unique and effective Effect, and I love it. It blends so well. Oh yeah. What's weird is about the film is that the only obvious, like clearly CGI thing that you can point to in the entire movie, like from beginning to end, is just that weird obtuse alien, like the destroyer, monolith. like destroyer armor type thing. Yeah, oh, Gort. And even that looks good, really. Yeah, that just looks like one of those things started walking around. So I know we haven't gotten there yet, but can I just praise this movie for taking one of the things that every movie fan has been obsessed with since they were a kid for no reason that they can explain, which is they took the poster to the thing and made <laughs> yeah. it into a movie villain. <laughs> that and the poster to the Stepford Wives. Two posters that do not reflect the movie at all, but were too good. To leave behind. They actually mentioned that in the commentary too, MB. Uh, Edgar Wright talks about it, like he was fascinated by that poster and wanted to kind of do it in the film because that scene doesn't appear in the thing at all. There's not like a blinding face glowy man in the thing. It's, but it's, it's such an evocative like, image he had to include it. Yeah, include so we've finally got the promise of that delivered in something. Which is genius because it's like, like it, 
I think it's just been a subconscious thing that we've all had, where it's like we're obsessed with the fact that that's a poster, even though it has nothing to do with the thing, mm-hmm. really, at all. And they finally, uh, right, just said, I'm going to make that the aliens in my movie because I just want to do that. It's like when... um. Like when Richard Stanley talked about the fact that he was so outraged the first time that he saw the uh, 70s Island of Dr. Moreau and the lady didn't turn into the cat. And he wanted to bring that <laughs> to life in his film. Edgar Wright got to do that, but with the Thing poster. My favorite story about that kind of thing is uh, how J.R.R. Tolkien came up with the Ents, which is as a child, he was watching Macbeth and he got to the part where the messenger said, uh-huh. it seemed as though the wood began to move. And little Tolkien was like, yeah, the trees are going to fuck everything up. <laughs> and then it was just dudes with leaves on them. And, he, and years later, he <laughs> rectified that by making tree beard. To go back to the idea of practical effects, though, and to tie it into MB's thing, it blew my mind when I found out, like, 90% of the glowy face aliens were done on set in camera. Like, they just had really bright lights attached to the, attached to the extras, so they'd turn those on, and they'd run at the camera, and that's what they record. It's kind of like Attack the Block. Like, you don't think the aliens can be right. real because they look so fake? Not fake, but just unreal? And it turns out, yeah, no, that's just what the aliens are. Oh, there is such a true art to making fake look good. Like, that's one of uh, some of my favorite stuff. That's why I love practical monster effects <laughs> so much. To interrupt, we're at the Good Companions, which I kind of feel is the fact that this is the first time all these guys are acting like they're friends again. But it's all a mask. Oh, it's oh, and the mask on the sign. Oh, oh, oh it's actually. Weird, weirdly funny how alcohol is treated in this movie. Or it's, I like a lot of alcoholic, alcoholic stories, it's not really demonized because even Andy, who's quit drinking, loosens up when he's drunk. Mm-hmm. And they all become friendlier to each other or just in general because they're not really wearing masks anymore. Yeah. They even become better fighters, which is one of the funniest things <laughs> in the world to me. Oh, uh, also, I, I love the, the fact the... that it's essentially their venom. Since uh, we just entered the trusty servant, if you look at the poster uh, outside the pub, that's the actor Michael Smiley, and he plays the human in the bar they will meet, who is the trusty servant of the machines. And eventually becomes a machine, so he's even a more trusty servant. But back to alcohol. Uh, there's an interesting point made in one of the commentaries. There's three, so it's tough to remember which one. They mention that Bill Nye is actually uh, really straight edge, like he's a teetotaler. And when he was asked to read for the movie, he said, well, this movie doesn't advocate alcohol. Like, it's not pro-drinking, right? And they went, well, I mean, at the end of the film, Gary basically forsakes alcohol and goes for water. So in their mind, they weren't advocating alcohol so much as saying, like, look, it can be a terrible crutch. Obviously, the guys who made the film drink. Shaun the Dead is all about being in a pub, too. So it strikes a weird balance between glamorizing alcohol, but also showing, like, eh, it's not really a great thing either. It's essentially a poison. That's like the greater themes of the film. Everything is far more complicated than films usually make them out to be. Yeah. And it's more, and especially more on a personal, person-to-person level. For Gary, alcohol is fucking terrible, but maybe Andy didn't really quit for the right reasons. He's... He quit drinking for other fucked up reasons about himself. 
Well, I like the idea that Andy says he hasn't drank in in 17 years. What he's really saying is, I haven't been around you in 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. Because drink alcohol is the Gary thing. Gary is basically human alcohol. Like, ridding himself of alcohol is just a way of, not to get pretentious, but symbolically cutting Gary out of his life. Like, I'm not even going to do the Gary thing when he's not here. Exactly. (laughs) As we see... Andy doesn't have a drinking problem. Not at all. Um, also, God damn it, I love that Simon Pig. I am a robot. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's like my favorite joke in the movie. Followed up by this, where everyone has to go into what exactly being a robot means, and they get into the, <laughs> the what definition a fucking, of robotics. What a right and peg joke the definition of robot is. <laughs> I love the idea because at a at a certain point in the commentary with Edgar and Simon, they start asking each other plot uh, information on what's actually going to be, and they try to determine which characters are still human. <laughs> and they come up with four: those two dudes, <laughs> David Bradley, and the Ding Dong Ditch dude, because he was really steamed. <laughs> It's true. It doesn't make any sense for the Ding Dong Dish guy to be a robot. Unless he's real good at his part. What I like is that means he, that dude seemingly just died. Yeah. <laughs> he got blown up. That's, well, it's the apocalypse that happens. Um, I guess, too, before we lose sight on other people besides Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, how much the supporting cast in this movie is fantastic. Like, Martin Freeman just walked in. And he's clearly broadcasting how much of a robot he is, but he was doing such a kind of sleazeball before, too, that it could be easy to miss on the first viewing. But in retrospect, he's like, oh, yeah, of course. I absolutely adore what a subtly weird performance Freeman puts in the entire film. Even before he's a blank, it's just like he just does weird shit. And watch the way, like, he walks around, too. Like, the way he waves his arms and how happy he is about stuff now and how smiley he is. Like, <laughs> he's such a robot. It's perfect. It's weird how Freeman doesn't do more villain roles because there is no actor better at being subtly creepy <laughs> while being really pleasant at the same time. One thing I do, like, obviously having... David in the the new Alien movies is fantastic, but just imagine if you were having like a new version of Ian Holm, once again played by him. Oh yeah, like, oh, could how you imagine? You'd be in like Covenant if all of a sudden he showed up instead of a secondary Michael Fassbender. You how think weird that I'll blow? <laughs> <laughs> how crazy would that? It'd be fantastic between these two actors. But besides oh, just those guys, just, be, just smiling the whole time, irritating oh. David. God, it'd be amazing. But besides that, uh, just just the other actors too. I want to pay attention to Patty Considine. Oh, so good. And so charming, like just a wonderful role. Like you just care for this guy. In any other movie, he would be the lead character. Yeah, and Eddie Marsh is so heart. much. Yeah, like Patty Considine is the heart of the movie, and Eddie Marsden, like, is kind of the reserved dude who has like. Who comes out of a shell? Like he, each of these characters represents some sort of like almost '90s movie trope of just okay, this is this dude, but it's kind of an inverse. This is this dude, it's kind of an inverse because they're all in their 40s. <laughs> well, I'm I'm fascinated by Patty's character, who is a punk rock architect. 
<laughs> who's like really blue collar, but also kind of a yuppie. And he wears really nice tailored suits, <laughs> but has all these metal tattoos. <laughs> like, that's very clearly somebody who was hardcore whenever he was a teenager. Then <laughs> kind of straightened up, but still looks in, his, in the mirror sometimes and is like, yeah, I'm still cool. <laughs> with his and you black hard hat. get that with the character so much. Oh, yeah. Like, he really wants you to know he's dating like a 20-some-year-old. Yeah, fitness instructor, no less. And just, I know he hasn't appeared in the film yet, but I feel like we we may be talking about other things by that point, so I don't want to skip over him. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Glorious class to this production. Glorious Pierce Brosnan, who, I didn't realize this until, like, looking at the IMDb trivia for this, but Pierce Brosnan appears in the movie with Rosamund Pike. They both appeared in Die Another Day. Uh, well, this interesting. is interesting. Kevin Bacon. It. This is what I uh, love about how Wright plays on the previous films in the trilogy, and also uh, repurposes them and kind of deconstructs them in, in weird, different ways. Which is really Brosnan's kind of playing the same type of character as Simon Skinner from Hot Fuzz. Yeah. <laughs> and also that was long. Dalton. Yep. <laughs> so this That's is Brosnan. <laughs> Two things. And Bill Nye in the first film, <laughs> who was cute. <laughs> Two things. We're going to get back to the Bond. But first, we're in the two-headed dog. Obviously, we have twins, which is kind of an insulting way to refer to these two women. But they are evil robots, so we'll let it pass. Um, but also the Bond thing. What I thought a brilliant move it was... Simon Pegg is fairly young. I mean, he's, what, 40 or something? But in this film, he shows a lot of nostalgia for the 1990s, which is when Pierce Brosnan was Bond. So putting him into this film is just signifying that nostalgia kind of twisted in a new way. Oh, it's, the same, like, ge- yeah, it's the same genius move as like having uh, Jim Broadbent be the police chief in Hot Fuzz because he represents old, pleasant English pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> It's just a great move. Like, it's great shorthand use. Well, and plus it maximizes talent out there. Pierce Brosnan's always fantastic. I love that Brosnan has reached his cameo portion <laughs> of his career. After your bond, what's left, man? Also, also, you have no idea how happy it makes me to see Rosamund Pike get an action scene. That's it's great watching the behind-the-scenes features that focus on what she's doing, because, man, she does not hold back when she's swinging a fake leg. <laughs> it really is weird to go back and see comedy Rosamund Pike. <laughs> I like that moment two seconds ago where both characters shouted out what? <laughs> and in completely different ways, and you can get that just that fraction of a second it takes them to say the word what? <laughs> like Gary being insulted, like, what do you mean I'm not good enough for her? And her, like... Wait, what's the intent of your message? Okay, with as many Bond actors, and yes, I'm going back to Bond, with as many Bond actors as Edgar Wright has directed in these movies, could you imagine if Edgar Wright directed the next James Bond movie? That's his dream. It would be cool, but it would also be such a weird fit. And I don't think it would ever happen because the Broccoli's wouldn't allow someone with that distinctive a voice. God, could you imagine Bond with the baby driver tone? Ooh, weird. Well, right. I mean, right's like his. You talked about his dream being Bond, like directing a Bond movie. 
But his thing also is those movies are so big, he wouldn't get to direct any of the fun stuff. Right. Like, ah, no, it'd be second unit out there, like, doing car chases and all, like, the close-ups of that stuff. And I just have, like, talky scenes and crap. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to do do stuff exploding. I do kind of wonder if Ant-Man has just spoiled Edgar Wright for big studio franchise movies forever. It was interesting because over the last few days, he actually released a few interviews talking specifically about Ant-Man. And he said he still hasn't seen it. He came close one time because a guy next to him on an airplane was watching it while he was flying. And he'd made it like a conscious choice to just never watch it because he kind of said, like, it's like someone came up to you and said, hey, do you want to watch your ex-girlfriend have sex with someone? Like, no. So on that airplane, you know, just pulled out his laptop and ignored it. But he's never seen it. He's still friends with, like, Paul Rudd, and he's really happy for him that that movie was successful. And he's he said he best can... friends with Chris Evans, which I just like pointing out every opportunity. <laughs> so he said he doesn't regret the film, like not directing it. He basically regrets all the time he spent working on the script because he could have been working on other projects. And he said the hardest part for him was his plan was oh, <laughs> one of the best jokes. In the world. <laughs> it's such a great joke. Um, <laughs> but he, he said the hardest part was his plan was always he wanted to be directing Baby Driver by the time. Ant-Man came out so that, you know, he wouldn't have to fixate on it. And unfortunately, he said it was like a four-month wait or something before they really got the green light on Baby Driver after Ant-Man came out. So he was stuck sitting there thinking like, oh, God, I could have directed a movie and it wouldn't have impacted my schedule in any way. But he seems to have taken it in stride and he still wishes the best for all those people. And it's a shame we didn't get an Edgar Wright Ant-Man movie. I'll still always regret that. But the one that came out is still really enjoyable. Yeah. It's better than it had any right to be, considering it switched directions. <laughs> any right to be? No. No, I already laughed at the <laughs> pun. Also, we're now in The Mermaid. Uh, I think the joke here is supposed to be the Marmalade Sandwich, who act as sirens, which are mythical creatures in the same vein as mermaids? Correct. Sirens and mermaids are pretty much the same. Sirens also, are they're more on the sign. Right, there's that, too. Sirens are more Greek mythology. And... Also, uh, listening through the commentaries, I found out this is apparently a thing in England where you have, like, old-school class reunion-style dances. Where everyone dresses like a schoolgirl. It sounds well, it really sounds like my sexual terrifying. fantasy. You know, it sounds like all my fetishes rolled in one. But... So I'm just laughing at David Bradley. <laughs> I, did you see him pull off, like, the hook cane removal? Like, in a cartoon? It was fantastic. It's in the background. It's one of those things you have to pay attention to the second time. Also... This isn't the most uh, deep thing to be talking about in this scene, but does Patty Considine always look wrong when he doesn't have a mustache? Like, he has a mustache face. Why doesn't he just have a mustache forever? This is me off. I feel like you need to write a personal letter to him. Like, excuse me, sir, have you considered always having a mustache? It's like there's the tan line of a mustache just built into his face. It's really weird. And here's another weird spot where everyone else who's very opposed to this journey at the start is now falling prey to temptation. And even these stout characters, oh, and creepy Martin Freeman, are, are falling prey to nostalgia in a sense. They see the young marmalade sandwich and they feel like they have to go along with it. Even, even Andy, who is trying to recover his marriage, we find out later. I love the 
the creep show lighting on. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, I have good news. I've reached the point of drinking where I no longer think IPAs are the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, I agree. Or otherwise, I have to drink a whole IPA and be like, oh, it's all right. I was, I was about to say, I'm fascinated by Roseman Pike's performance in this movie where she is perpetually the one friend who's really trying to get a ride to leave the party but can't get anybody. <laughs> like, she always has that body language, and I feel it's very intentional. Oh, definitely. Like, she she's the only sober person. Everyone else there is drunk. So she's, you know, that caretaker. You always... In my experience, when I would go out to the bars and stuff, you normally have that one friend who's there to make sure everyone else doesn't hurt themselves. And they're like, oh, God, you idiots. What are you doing now? Why do I have to be the babysitter? It really captures the sober friend mentality. Oh, for sure. Like, the only thing... <laughs> I love the shake on the wobbly straw, too. Crazy Bradley straw. is such an interesting actor. He's fantastic at everything. all times. He's amazing because even if he only has five minutes of screen time, he makes a memorable character. Let's look back at Harry Potter. Filch, never given, like, really more than ten lines in a movie. You remember the goddamn character name. And he can do so much, but he doesn't seem like an actor who can, like, flip between tones as well as he does. I mean, I'm still really mad at him from Game of Thrones, so he can he can do all sorts of stuff, but I'll never forgive him. And goddammit, he's the only good part of the strain. Him and Kevin Durant. Yes. Corey Stroll isn't good in that? No. He, he tries, but... Corey oh. Stroll pisses excellence, but there's nothing he can do with the strain. I say, that dude's a good actor, so I feel bad about that. I feel bad about the strain in general. <laughs> right? I want to like Oh my god, this beautiful man. I don't know why this shot is the funniest. <laughs> so, I seriously thought this was Alexander Skarsgård the first time I, I saw that. I was like, what a weird, what a weird like, cameo. He looks like I a lot of Skarsgård. Isn't, isn't that one of the guys from Twilight? Like, obviously not Robert Pattinson, but isn't he like the, the father of the group of vampires? No, no be... that's, uh, that's uh, Peter Carlyle. Okay. He he looks angelic. I'll say that much. Also, his we're all hard right now. Well, I mean, with those looks, how could you not be? Also, we're entering the phase where Gary now looks like a sad hobo clown, <laughs> which is just such a weird about face <laughs> that spits in the face of Hollywood films, where you take your lead star and now you'll notice he's pushed off to the left and he's not even the main focus of this conversation. He's just the drunk weirdo with lipstick all over his face in the background. They just make them look so fucked up throughout the movie. They have just foam on their mouths. and At this point, they're very true to reality. They're high-fiving when they wouldn't high-five. <laughs> they're all sloppy. This their eyes like are the half-closed. This is the most realistic drunk movie I've ever seen. I, Guys, I, like, as of two years ago, this was every one of my weekends. So I can, I can <laughs> look at all these faces and like, yep, 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 I've done all of those. I love the hair continuity in this movie because there's a weird amount of continuity that Pays off in a weirdly comedic, like uh, comedic way. Like Martin walking out and having perfect hair the second he becomes a robot. <laughs> not that he didn't before. <laughs> it was a little like not quite the same. It was like, he had a little the, fucked he, up. He had the fight, so it was a little ruffled. Also, I just want to say I fucking love the Star Trek lighting of this scene, where <laughs> it's clear for the first time that Oliver's a robot. Yep. Also, uh, all the trash cans, the compost pin bins. 
I didn't realize this until listening to one of the commentaries. They basically mentioned, like, yeah, if you think about it, they're replacing an entire town of people. Well, what do you do with all the leftovers? There's just mulch that's being thrown into the compost bins. That's what you see them everywhere. It's horrifying. A little bit. It's one of those background horrifying details. Like, if you think more about it, it's a soiling green kind of thing. You just got to shiver a little bit. Well, right, and Peg spent so much time world-building. Like, they, they worked out all kinds of stuff about the network that's not in the movie at all. <laughs> like, that's why all of this just feels so genuine. Speaking of the network, we have now entered the Beehive. And I'm not smart enough to put this one together, but I'm going off of the website flickeringmyth.com, which actually has a list of the bars, and they mentioned uh, the joke here is essentially this is where they find out about the collective robots that are organizing the events of the film who are more or less like bees. You know, they're trying to make everyone into drones. I mean, it's like hive mind. Like, that, that's yeah. added to that whole sort of trope. Also, goddamn, Pierce Brosnan. Pierce the queen bee. <laughs> Goatee Pierce Brosnan. With his I, Indiana Jones attire. I love... What Wright said about uh, the way he shot Brosnan, which is, he shot him in the opening in just a, the right way to make you say, wait a second, was that Pierce Brosnan? Oh, well, anyway. <laughs> then you forget I, about Pierce Brosnan, and then he shows up being Pierce Brosnan. As, as a super minor spoiler for Baby Driver, I don't know if there's a Pierce Brosnan cameo or not. There's a guy who looks like him sitting on a corner that the camera pans by, and I'm like, is that Pierce Brosnan? And the camera moves so fast, you can't tell. I think it's the IMDb It might be Undercover Brosnan. I don't know. He might be in that movie as a cameo. Maybe not. I'll have to watch it again to find out. He's like the pineapples on Psych. Here's the thing. (laughs) Pierce Brosnan has appeared in every film since the early 90s, and we've never known it because it's been a pan over shot where we don't know whether or not that's Pierce Brosnan. I just imagine him ripping off his face and revealing himself as Daniel Day-Lewis now. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis, quote-unquote, is retiring from acting now, so for all we know, he's just succumbed to his Pierce Brosnan alter ego now. I just want to say, I really hope Day-Lewis retires the same way Brett Favre did. (laughs) Eight times. Yeah, just crying every time. Just put me in one more movie, please. Look, okay, sorry. As as a Wisconsinite, the Brett Favre button hurts a little bit. I don't know if I want to go into it. <laughs> Brett Favre didn't want to do training camp, and we all knew it. That's why he retired. He just wanted to get out of having to do all the We've work. He just wanted to show up and play football. I'm, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it. Let the gunslinger <laughs> retire in peace. Also. Okay, <laughs> this is my this is my birth of Andy. Okay, here, let's focus on the choreography Edgar Wright is a master of. Look at this goddamn fight. Okay, something I love that is consistent in all of Edgar Wright's films is the very deliberate video game aesthetic to all the action. (laughs) He is such a big fan of startup animations. Everyone has to go, ah, and pose with their weapons and then fight. That's one thing that's fascinating me about Wright. When he is interested in something, he commits to it 100%, and he expresses it through his movies. I mean, you get genre mashups in each one of his films, and he doesn't just kind of go, okay, well, here's a horror beat because there should be a horror beat. He goes, here's a horror beat because I goddamn love horror movies. And he understands them, so he replicates them in such a way that someone who's only kind of familiar with would never get right. 
Well, I, that was something I was thinking about a lot today, just how Edgar Wright has the most enviable career of any modern director because he just gets to do one of all of his favorite genres <laughs> Every and time. make something that's not just that's not just a, like a pastiche, but just a legitimate entry. Like Shaun of the Dead is one of the best. Zombie. It's a parody that turns into wow, this is actually just a great zombie movie. Um, Hot Fuzz is a legitimately good conspiracy thriller and cop movie. Yeah, almost. And, and like, if you just went a little further with it, you could say it was almost a great slasher film. The slasher elements are just not present enough for me to say that. But you could tell if you wanted to make a slasher movie, no problem. It'd be right up there. God, I wanted to do that. And um, what I love, what I love is this kind of reflects a sort of softer side of what Edgar Wright is obsessed with, because this really is his Lawrence Kasdan, everyone gets together and talks about their feelings movie. <laughs> but Ed, it's Edgar Wright, so it's also his big sci-fi movie. That's not his big sci-fi movie. And I, and I love what he's doing here, where with Gary, the whole time, every, he has a very different focus than everyone else. He just wants to keep his beer. Which makes a joke into a subplot, or vice versa, and you can really focus on that while everyone else has their battle to follow through. And it gives you multiple planes to focus in, in this fight, and it makes it complex and rich which, and just so good. Which I love. It, there's something that drives me crazy about action movies, is when there's action with no narrative. Like, people are just fighting because they're getting punched. In every fight scene in this movie, there's an action subplot going on with each character. <laughs> Everything is a struggle. Everybody's in character, right down to Peter hiding. Always. Like, he never takes out a single blank until right before his end. Like, he always hides. He's, he's basically the Gerano from Jurassic Park, you know? <laughs> down to actually hiding in a bathroom cell. And can I just say... Finally, in the Cornetto trilogy, we have Nick Frost just unloading and getting to be the big action heavy of the scene and being the competent one of the duo between him and Simon Pegg. Because in the other two, like Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead, he's just kind of the lovable idiot and Sean Pegg is portrayed as more of the, you know, more straightforward protagonist where he, yeah. he has some semblance of sanity to him. <laughs> and the roles are completely reversed with for this, and Nick Frost just brings it home. He finally gets his moment, his, like, big, like, okay, this is me doing that, and I get to do it in a way that just brings down the house. I love like, Frost. Is, man, Frost. Oh, oh, Nick yeah. Frost is so good. I really hope he gets his Yandu moment where they take a character actor and really give him his own. Right. I, I just want to say, like, okay, Wright probably won't direct Bond, but you know what? Maybe Nick Frost can be Bond. But we've I mean, heard we, his Michael Caine. <laughs> we do have Paul, at least, where Nick Frost gets to be the main character, so that's fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, new action. Yeah, yeah that's Sword. cool, too. But also, also going back to these movies, I, I find it fascinating that in each one of the Cornetto trilogies, Simon Pegg's been the main character, but he's been a different level of unlikable in each one. And it's a purposeful challenge where Wright is trying to set up a character who is obviously wrong or incorrect, and make you eventually see his worldview or agree with him by the end of the movie. In Shaun the Dead, it's just a slacker, but he means well. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to get behind. Hot Fuzz, like, he's super competent, but he's also very distant from other people, so 
by nature, you just kind of are distant to him. And in the end, he learns to kind of come around and become friends with people, so you like him. In this movie, he starts off as a drug user, a drunk, he's suicidal, he's a manipulative of his friends, he's not a good guy. But when he gets up there to give his speech, you want him to be right. Like, you want the aliens to give in to Simon Pegg. And it's such a big challenge they've set up for themselves. Oh, and there's a classic fence gig. Um, that is, it's just great. I, I really like the fact they set that challenge for themselves, and they had to think of a way to make Simon Pegg likable and work with his character and actively develop him as they go through. And, uh, plus, and plus it's difficult because it's Simon Pegg. How is he not likable? That hairline. I love how much this movie feels like a culmination of the rest of the trilogy, where everything feels like a combination of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. The blanks are, you know, the town community plus zombies. Uh, Gary is Shaun plus Nick Angel, <laughs> taken to an extreme. Like, it, Everything feels like it's been built towards with this movie also being completely self-contained. That's very impressive to me. It's very hard to make something that complements an entire filmography that doesn't feel beholden to that at all. It's, it's like, also just it's also just amazing to see something that does an anthology trilogy essentially and does it to where each of the films are just their own thing. Like you could take them out of the trilogy and it's like, yeah, that's its own thing. That's yeah. that's the thing that you could just hold up on a pedestal by itself, independent of the fact that it's it also happens to be this trilogy. It's a distinct flavor of the Cornetto. Oh. What's cool about World's End is it still, despite the fact that these films aren't bare-ass, the fact these films aren't connected story-wise, it still does the trilogy finale thing of going back over the previous movies. But this is uh, tropes and concepts and ideas, or even splitting up like characters' personalities and like taking them across several characters to show different ids of them. Or since this film is very much about nostalgia it's also meta where it's playing against your nostalgia to the last two movies and telling a story about moving on past the work that's been done yeah that's something we haven't quite touched upon which is the amount of balls Wright had to make the third film in this Cornetto trilogy this unpleasant (laughs) Because this is not a wacky good time movie. No, it gets pretty deep, especially at the end when it's revealed, you know, Gary's not just an alcoholic. He was actually suicidal. Like, he was committed because they thought he was going to kill himself. And he's probably planning to again after he did the mile. Well, yeah, like, his plan is to do the mile. His plan isn't necessarily see tomorrow. Yeah. That's why the aliens do not matter, because who cares? This is just some weird stuff that's happening on his nice his last night on Earth. Right. It's such it's an incredibly dark story, which is weird to say considering the other ones are like hot fuzz about a family <laughs> losing their way and a murder conspiracy and in Shaun of the Dead where it's the end of humanity where zombies are devouring people. 
but those are honestly the lighter movies in this one. It's a very dark, heavy context. Well, by comparison, the other two are really just cartoons. Like, Hot Fuzz especially is just has this amazing, like, cartoon, almost like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back element to where everything is on a hyper level of realism to where you can't look at it and it's like, oh yeah, that would totally happen. Not that this would totally happen, it's just this is kind of in its own ingrained reality, and it's more down-to-earth and kind of like, this started somewhere where you can kind of believe in it. In the same way that Shaun of the Dead kind of started on sort of a mundane level. But, it's the most ridiculous plot out of all of them, but it's somehow the most down-to-earth? Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's I just fascinating to me, too. Oh, sorry, go ahead and put your thing out. I just want to say, I like that Peter dies laughing at a gay joke. The one thing he swore he would never do, because everything <laughs> has to have symmetry. They, they talked about that in the commentary. It was kind of the, one of those things, like, in the old days, you would die because you had sex or you had drugs. And now in modern movies, it's like, you die because you were on PC. Like, you were insensitive to other people, so you deserve to, you know, get murdered. Which I agree with. <laughs> Which is a shame, because, man, I like his character so much. But it also fits the symmetry of the opening of the movie, where they leave him in the woods and then go to the next bar. And they also need the three musketeers instead of the five musketeers. Well, I love... Plus, it says of this joke, which is hilarious, because you never expect him to finally just lose his shit. And get that twig. Yes, it fucking is, with the spit flying out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I love physical yeah, comedy anymore, Zan. <laughs> you know what I think would have actually... Like, this is the one joke where I'm like, what would have been even more amazing is if Blank looked like, which is, what if that just turned out to be, like, that dude wasn't a Blank at all, and he was just beating <laughs> That's not what I originally up. thought the scene was going the first time I watched it. just this. kills that dude. <laughs> yes. As a slightly unrelated note, but just talking about his character, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, the BBC production, so good. Everyone should go check that out. It's You'll, you'll enjoy it. Oh, it's on the queue. Oh, I highly recommend it, because the book is a goddamn tome. Enjoyable, but it's a lot of reading. And, I just um, want to point out, Cody sent me his copy of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell in the mail. I read like, the passing, book. I, passing like a cinder block through FedEx. <laughs> it's very true. It's a dense tome. Small print, 800 pages. That thing is thick. Well worth it, though. If you're looking for a read, I highly recommend it. Or if you're looking for a watch that's spread out over like six hours... The miniseries is pretty good. But one thing I wanted to touch on that we haven't talked quite about, just how British these movies are. I don't know if they're authentic, oh, yeah. because I'm not British, but it feels like it should be. Which, uh, kind of, again, a minor spoiler for Baby Driver. It's the first Peg movie that's explicitly American, and he just nails how American it feels when you're in a big city. Like, as my experience as someone from a small town going to a big city... Watching Baby Driver, even though I'd never really spent time in Atlanta besides driving through it, I felt like, oh, shit, yeah, that feels right. That feels like my experience in it, Minneapolis. It feels right, you say? It feels right? No. <laughs> it, uh, we made that joke twice. <sighs> no, it wasn't rubble, made rubble. the first time. Sure. Uh, but it, Edgar Wright manages to take a location and nail it, or at least our representation, our feelings of it. So you feel, you feel like there's an authenticity to it, to where it's exactly. like, okay, you feel like if you've watched an Edgar Wright film, you've visited England in a weird... Yeah, or if you watch Scott Pilgrim, you kind of feel like, I know a little bit about Canada now. 
Yeah, it, it makes no sense on a logical level, but you just intrinsically feel like, oh yeah, I watched the first like fifteen minutes of Shaun of the Dead. That's totally how life is in England. <laughs> yeah, like, realism is irrelevant. Authenticity is everything. Exactly. Oh. Like it feels authentic, even if I don't really know what it's like to live in England. If I don't know what the pub scene is like in small town England, I've seen this movie, and I feel like he did an authentic job of representing the feeling of it. It's the same way, like, when you watch Star Wars, you feel like a galaxy is being lived in, and you feel like, okay, this is what it would be like to live in that version of that galaxy. It's kind of the same thing with this, in this, like, weird version of London that has zombies and aliens <laughs> and, and and cultists, and you just feel like, okay, well, yeah, that, that stuff's probably there, but, like, the, the other stuff, the mundane stuff, that's probably real. And you get different feelings, too, by movie. Like, Shaun of the Dead feels very different. That's like a bigger town feel than what you get in Newton Haven versus what you get in Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz is supposed to be a very small town. And it, it feels very different than what you get with this movie and what you get in Shaun of the Dead. Also, like we're now like in regions. the King's Head, which I have a hard time explaining. It's psychological. Uh, I mean, I guess it's all in the King's Head because Gary is the king and he goes his own way. Well, also the sign is of actually it's of Simon Pegg uh, drawn on uh, drawn to be the king. Mm-hmm. So He's that got, like, in the itself, king yeah. So that in itself is like yeah, that's definitely supposed to be harkening to Gary. What I love is Simon Pegg with the uh, French king getup. Just looks like Edgar Wright. <laughs> it really does. God, just to point out again the practical effects. Most of these extras are just wearing lights on their face. But isn't that perfect? Oh, yeah. Like, obviously, there's a couple special effects that are, like, when the head goes flying and stuff. But it looks fantastic. And for, for a low-budget film, it really works. Well, the, let's just, I think what that is uh, specifically is just trick lighting just goes a long way to make that kind of work. Because I'm sure if you looked at that at a, like, just a slightly different angle, it would look fake. Inc- oh, yeah. Like, incredibly fake. But it's like, he lights it in just the perfect way where it's like, Okay, that just looks like something that's like, yeah, they have an internal glow as opposed to, like, they're yeah. just wearing stuff. Well, I guess when we're talking about lighting, I guess, to give credit where it's due, we really have to respect the DP. Again, Bill Pope, same guy who did it, like, Army of Darkness. That guy's oh, done yeah. a ton of great movies. Like, he knows his shit. I believe he did the uh, Spider-Man films as well, the Raimi. Did he? I think so. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. No, that wasn't a joke about Amazing Spider-Man. No, stop calling out jokes that don't exist. I it wasn't even, a joke. I didn't want anyone to make the connection there. That's why I brought it up. I, I was doing your hole. job for you, Mike. I know. Uh, I don't want anyone to think about Amazing Spider-Man. Anyways, we're now in the hole in the wall. <laughs> Bar 11. Sorry, Pub 11. Uh, I'm assuming this is called the hole in the wall because eventually a hole is driven through the wall when the car goes through it. Yeah, that's actually that's actually the exact explanation that's given. an amazing flip going back to um talking about the structure of the film perhaps i'm reading too much into it but i almost find because it's such a weird structure that i think threw a lot of people off uh when the film first came out because while it was very of course incredibly well received it a lot of people found it kind of bizarre more so yeah. than the past films like they just couldn't quite wrap their head around it or why exactly they liked it because yeah. it was just so off the Rotten Tomatoes, I think it has an 89% among critics, and with fans, it's something like mid 70s. Yeah, 
it's it's a kind of uh, you think we're going going right, uh, we're going left, and then we're taking a U turn, and then going right, and then we're going backwards. Like it really doesn't make any sense structure wise in a lot of ways. And can, another way I feel like the <laughs> film's meta is I really want to interrupt you. The oh, signs behind him that say "Welcome, join our club," and there's one beer hanging out in the world's end for Gary. Of course. Of course. Sorry. Sorry. I had to point that out. So it's almost like the film itself is rebelling against film conformity because, right, it does not a fan of cookie cutter filmmaking. No. Very explicitly. He just, be it, we, of course, we've talked about his shot selection or just basic film structure. He never goes for what is expected and not even necessarily to be expected, but he just doesn't want to go that way. Even Hot if it make- has five endings. Exactly. <laughs> and I feel like that this is really it. Like, you know, the, what happens when the aliens, like they first see like all of the, all of the blanks, they just keep going with the plot and get progressively drunker. The thing you would never expect a film to actually do. And it kind of just continues on as if the plot hasn't really happened yet. Yeah, it never stops in its track to consider what's happened. It's basically like, well, we got to keep moving. And then the plot keeps attempting to interrupt it. And then the, then the rest of the film pushes back on the sci-fi <laughs> plot. And then it, it only really starts to reach ahead once Gary starts running for the world's end. And then it continues when they head into the basement. Until that point, it's not necessarily that it's structureless. It just scoffs at the idea of structure and tries to build something new off of that. And then this amazing, out-of-nowhere, heart-wrenching reveal. (laughs) It really is. And it makes sense, too, if you watch it in the second part, because when they're in the beehive, or I'm sorry, the smokehouse, Gary refuses to show his arms and prove that he's human because he doesn't want them to realize he was committed and it's super sad. I it's the emotional gut punch here is just huge. Oh yeah. And Peg's performance. And the great thing about that scene where they ask him to show his arms is it plays on so many different levels. Because at first your mind goes to uh track marks. Right. And they played up in the original that in the yeah. first part of the movie that it's just an intervention. Not that he was actually committed. They 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 put it like he's an alcoholic, not that He's actually suicidal, which is a completely different level of depression. I like how, as much as you hate this character, the idea of him in an institution being told when to go to bed and eat is actually really upsetting. (laughs) It's because they've sold you on the idea of Gary King so much in this two hours that that reveal totally does have the gut punch. Like, no, nobody tells Gary King what to do. <laughs> and just that reveal at the end, too, that he doesn't get his last beer when he goes for it. That's when the last phase of this intervention is triggered. 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 Because he's very drunk. No, not that bad. It's only four beers in. Oh, you're getting caught at the end of the film. Speed it up a little bit. I mean, they're like 8% each, so I mean, that gives me something, but still. Poison your blood with alcohol, Cody. Also, I the do drink, my best. The drink responsibly signed directly behind Gary. <laughs> the entire time, yeah. 
I, I, I love this. There was an article forever ago, uh, post on birth movies, death. that talked about how this was essentially the star Trek ending. Like <laughs> Gary King solves this, not by using strength or might or superiority. He ends things by talking it out with the enemy. And even though his point is illogical and weird and it is just frustrating and circular, it's humanity. And he kind of infects the alien entity in the end where it kind of takes on his point of view where it says fuck it and leaves. Because, well, I mean, that's kind of humanity in a nutshell. I've been fascinated since watching this movie when it first came out with the notion of the planet Earth being an addict that a more responsible planet needs to intervene on. But ultimately, planet Earth has to hit rock bottom for things to get any better. Yes. Because really, when you look at the sum total of human history, yeah, we're we're just a junkie that needs to be helped. What's fascinating, too, about the network is it also, in a lot of ways, represents how the old gener the old generation always tries to force the new generation to conform to what its ideals are, or at least what the old generation thinks its ideals are. Uh, the network being like the more corporate version of that, with its internet and Starbucks. But in a way, the network is also kind of living in this weird, no, stay in the past, but our version of it, so it's better. Right, a controlled version of it. Also, yeah, it's, it's just the chalkboard that isn't chalk. Yeah, an incredibly important moment of the movie where Gary sees himself, the perfect version of himself he's been dreaming about, and basically says, nah, and kills himself instead. So he completes his suicide quest, but... In a positive way, which is, I don't want to romanticize suicide. Oh, he feels the memory of himself that he's let go of. He basically says, I can't be that, I have to be me. And he rejects all the past that he's been embracing throughout the entire film and moves forward finally from this point and can evolve. He basically goes through a 17-year midlife crisis and ends up on the other side. Yeah. While fighting Bill Nye's voice. (laughs) And I just want to say... As dysfunctional and broken as all this seems, it actually does line up with how real recovery works. Like, an intervention is meant to be a wake-up call, not, and now I live your life for you. Like, this is the equivalent of having an intervention with somebody and saying, okay, now you're going to live with me and I'm going to follow you around and make sure you never drink again. Like In the end, all an addict can do is use the love of the people around them to help themselves pull themselves out of addiction. Right. If you're just hovering over someone and taking the beer out of their hand, then that's not recovery. You've just made them a slave. Yeah, you've made them a prisoner, more or less, of, of your will. You're not fixing them, you're not helping them, you're just preventing on a lighter note man i really think uh one of the turning points for our way to empathize with 
Gary, is when a couple minutes ago, they're behind the bar. Andy tell him, tells him to not walk out and confront the boys. And he just ignores him, walks out, adjusts his coat, and confronts this unknown destiny face forward. But you have to admit, the certain amount of bravery and bravado that he provides there is kind of endearing. So the character flaw is obviously still there, but you realize, like, hey, at least he's willing to speak for humanity against evil. Well, not really evil, it's just a misguided point of view. Yeah. The entity really wants, the network wants the best for humanity, but in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense. Like I spoke before, gentrification? Not great. Then again, I don't necessarily want to drink in the bar where someone's overdosing to death in the toilet next to me. I mean, you, you, as sneaky David Bradley. <laughs> Perfect timing on his part. Always. That's the kind of the weird thing with uh, the whole gentrification versus local color thing. It's like, it gets things done, but it's a hollow victory because you kind of just sold your soul for safety and comfort. And on the other end, you don't necessarily want to go into local color because it's like, oh, great, there's the three same drunk bunkers here that make this place like unsafe for me to go into. Well, ultimately, but we were like feeding into the into what we were saying earlier. If a if a place is going to be good, it's going to be good. You can't force that. Whenever you make it artificial, you've done something horrible. Yeah, it's all just fake. Alcoholism is fake happy, and gentrification of self is fake happy. Yeah. Bad things are bad. Good things are good. You can't. You can only put so much lipstick on something. You're just the lying first half of that statement was hilarious. <laughs> good is good. Bad is bad. Fire! Ah! The gun is good. The penis is evil. <laughs> that is the second Zardoz reference tonight. The first one wasn't recorded, but they were mentioned. <laughs> I just like how we have to inform the audience that Zardoz was in fact brought up at some point. Uh, Audience, so. if you're listening at home, please just assume that the four of us will bring up Zardoz at any given notice. Like, it's just every time we talk, we've mentioned Zardoz at some point, be it the giant stone face or the banana hammock. Ho ho. Step it this in with, uh, the me. I. I just love Bill I Hines. think that Edgar Wright is a huge Zardoz fan, and I can say that with, like, no margin of error. Oh, he definitely is. Peg's utter delight at everything dying. They're all dying horribly. I just love how in the end, even their victory is like, it's 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 good that they won, but at what cost? Because now they have to now they have to rebuild. Gary literally had to destroy the world to learn a lesson. There's <laughs> like, something like it's so horrifying. Yet beautiful at the same time. Because he kind of, it, 
essentially broke the world from its cyclical spell of addictions no matter what. <laughs> and then David Bradley. Super Bradley run away. <laughs> that man is a gift. Do you think he outpaced the fireball? I like to think so. Even Edgar Wright doesn't seem sure of who died, so, I mean, there's a chance. In your head, Cannon, just assume he made it, folks. Uh, he has tunnels underneath the town. Well, I think he got on a motorcycle and left. Practical effect. It's cracking me up so much. Edgar Wright actually set this up so Simon could run into that car. I just like how even... Her getting lost on the roundabout has to be seeded earlier in the movie because it of symmetry. Oh, that or roundabout something. thing was also a huge part of the opening. Or something I've been meaning to bring up the whole commentary, which is I love how Wright's obsession, like is borderline of psychotic obsession <laughs> with symmetry almost accidentally gives him his greatest strength, which is nothing is throwaway in these films. Every character has a full character arc just to complete that symmetry. Yep. And, and also, that's something I love. You feel like you've watched a novel at the end of one of his movies. That's a great way to say it. I, I really appreciate, too, the fact that the vehicle has to go in reverse before it can spin around and go forward, no, because that seems very indicative of the entire film. Like, they regress to eventually figure out how to progress. Yeah. It's such a, like, perfect... It's such a small thing, too, but it sums up the entire, like, subtext of the film. <laughs> yeah, that so four much... seconds of driving footage. <laughs> There's so much microscopic stuff like that that's belaying the, the ideas of regression and progression. Just things like them having ink on their hands so they look like kindergartners and <laughs> the the blanks being a giant action figures so all of the grown men are playing with action figures in the bathroom just all kinds of subtle childhood things thrown in there but i mean also with the ink too it's kind of like the idea of uh, that stain that's on you which is something they all have like their past won't leave them so they have to address it Except for Oliver, who's perfect. Oh, he's fine. The best of us. <laughs> he's the only one who is honestly happier being a robot. I just want to say, my favorite story Wright tells about this film is, for this shot, he just showed his DP the, the trailer to This is the End and said, do that to the town. <laughs> <laughs> he talked about that in one of the commentaries, basically saying, like, oh, I have to do something different from what they did, so it has to be a different look, kind of. He also had to convince those guys not to use the, the name World's End because they wanted to do that originally, but he's, like, friends with Seth Rogen, like, hey, man, no, I've been working on this movie a long time. Please do not use that name. Yeah, because you cannot rename this movie. No. no. Well, you'd have to change the bar name, and I think that's a real bar, if I remember Yeah, it right. is. It is. Uh, in the background, too, you see the air is the human to forgive divine. Uh, one of the sayings of AA, like, built into this film. So you really, it's, it's, like Mike said before, really that kind of middle ground between demonizing and glamorizing alcohol usage. And in, in, in retrospect, the alcohol is not even that important. It's, this character's on a destructive path of view. 
who really just wants to embrace and connect with other people and is not sure how to move forward with his life. The alcohol is just a symptom of that. Well, that's the thing that's so interesting about Gary not drinking at the end of the movie, just drinking the water like Andy, which is... like Exactly. What, what, what Andy you- mentioning at the start of the film... You know, you go to with a bunch of rugby drinkers, mean rugby guys to a bar and you just order water. That's bravery. And it just shows that what Gary was after wasn't the alcohol. Like It was just the experience. The alcohol was the tumorous thing that was perverting everything and just making it even more destructive. That was the crutch that was helping him deal with the horrible cycle he was in. The alcohol wasn't the horrible cycle. Also, I am so impressed with how out of nowhere, epic, the last five minutes of this movie are, where it just becomes a self-contained movie. Yeah, you just get an entire world in about 30 seconds. (laughs) I also like that the term planks caught on, and that's what the local people call them. Like, somehow their pub crawl was just enough where everyone knew, oh, those are a blank. It's, it's, I love I love the pronoun joke in this movie so much. <laughs> God damn, that is excellent writing. Oh, it is fucking fantastic. Uh, I like beer is a better death. What's great about, about this ending, too, and how just out of left goddamn field it is, is it also says a lot about what Wright knows about storytelling, which is you can do fucking anything at the end of a story. Just as long as the heart doesn't change. It's great. It's like the world literally ends. You get this just out of nowhere, all of this exposition about this sci-fi world that exists all of a sudden. With this fairy tale ending. Yes, but the heart of the film, like, doesn't move an inch. It's that story of uh, Steven Spielberg at the end of Jaws. They follow me for an hour and a half. They'll be with me for the last ten minutes when I decide to blow up a shark and violate science. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the secret of film that's been proven time and time again, is that as long as you earn whatever ending you're going for, you can end however you want. You just have to earn it. The good endings are earned. The bad endings are completely unearned. Can we just talk about how epic it is that Gary is going on a pub crawl across <laughs> the earth? Also, pay close attention. You'll see Stone Cold Steve Austin in this scene. It's hard to tell because they're all bald-headed Steve Cold, Stone Cold Steve Austin men, but he's there. Also, I just want to point out the, one of the most amazing IMDb trivia facts I've ever seen for any movie is that Gary's sword in this scene is a replica of Aragorn's sword, because <laughs> Aragorn became the king. And he strikes an Aragorn pose as the last shot of the movie. Oh my god, you're right. When he goes after the cave, uh, not the cave trolls, but the trolls on the fields before he goes into Mordor, it makes perfect sense. It's all Return of the King again. So Edgar Wright ended the Cornetto trilogy with a Lord of the Rings reference, the most Edgar Wright thing I can think of. Dude, if you're going to make a reference, Lord of the Rings is a great way to go. That's an amazing 12 hours of your life. I just realized, yeah, that's t- that's the fucking poster shot from Return of the King. Yep. It is. 
And then that <laughs> bouncy music for the credits. <sighs> I I honestly it's it's strange because watching movies, I always try and pick out something I like and ignore the stuff I don't like. Because normally movies have a lot of faults. Like, you you can tell from technical level someone fucked something up, or they found it in the edit, and so they just kind of make it work. Edgar Wright is one of the directors where if I'm watching one of his movies, I have almost zero complaints, because I know this guy has manufactured something that's perfect, or as near to perfect as you could ask for. Oh yeah, I've said on the show before, Edgar Wright is my favorite director because... As far as I've seen, he is the only person alive who makes perfect movies. I've never seen someone fire on all cylinders like Wright does. Even when I disagree on certain things, I can't argue that that was not perfection. He just really knows what he's doing. And even if you disagree, like you said, he has a vision and he enacts it. It's not like something where... He had a vague idea and figured, I'll explore this as I film. He's one of the few people in Hollywood who can take a complete vision for what they want to do and just do it. And do it 100%. You you feel like he has done every single thing he set out to do from the beginning. It's, it's almost like completing a video game where he's the only director who managed to get all the achievements. <laughs> He knows every move, like, nope, don't go to the left, you'll die. This is Dragon's Lair. I know the exact combo <laughs> to get you through the flashing lights to the end of the dungeon. If you don't follow me, you're gonna fuck up. Like he's one of those he's one of those kids from Japan who masters dance dance revolution. <laughs> <laughs> but with Simon Pegg. Can we put that exactly. on Twitter? Like when we promote this, I want that to be yes. <laughs> in the line. Edgar Wright is the man who knows dance dance revolution. Here's our review of World's End. But it, but it is fascinating. It's like, I can look at a movie like Scott Pilgrim and think of things I would add. I cannot think of a single thing I would take away. Well, and Scott that's Pilgrim, very, Pilgrim's very rare. a weird choice, too, because it's based on six graphic novels, and the sixth one wasn't completed when he started. So you can definitely look into that and be like, oh, well, for time constraints, he had to remove certain things. For his original movies, oh man, they're 100% his, and he owns them, and even watching Khalid, it seems like, nope, he made the right choice. He had the right movie presented to us. I can't imagine Edgar Wright ever doing a director's cut. No. And, like, I'll go one even further say it's like, I like Scott Pilgrim, I don't love it. I don't love Shaun of the Dead either, just because I haven't seen it enough times. I feel like that's one I really need to go back and watch again, because I've just kind of... I, I watched it once all the way through, and I really didn't garner that much of an appreciation for it. MB's but opinion can, does not reflect box office pulp. But I will say... Let me finish. But I will say... <laughs> I just had no to get matter, that in there. No matter what, those are Edgar Wright films. Those are exactly what he wanted to make, and it's like, I can't take that away from him. It's like, everything about that is exactly what he wanted to do, and it's like, okay... I can, they're technically still absolutely perfect. And it's a little sad because you don't see that from other directors. You always get that sense of compromise or committee feel behind everything. Edgar Wright movies feel like, okay, he sat with a couple of close friends. Maybe he wrote it with Simon Pegg, but he had a clear vision in mind and he presented that in the end. 
And there's not enough directors who really can do that. Maybe Quentin Tarantino. I, I can't think of too many others who have the same pull. Spielberg, same. You know, there's like only a couple guys with enough power or vision that can really present exactly what they thought from start to end. Ryan and Tarantino are similar in a, in a lot of ways. Not necessarily in the style that they do, but the way they use style. You'll get a lot of that in Baby Driver. I imagine. Um it's like the the old quote, which is the writer creates the perfect world. You know, for Wright, this is the movies he makes, each of those are the perfect world where it has this kind of style to it. People talk in this sort of way. And it's same for Tarantino. Like um at the moment Troy Duffy is in the news. Not to insult Boondock Saints, if you like Boondock Saints, not for me. But that's a dude who's like going for style because Tarantino has a cool style. With Wright and Tarantino, they're same stock, which is they're not thinking about style. They're just thinking this is what they like. And this is the inside of their head. Yeah, it's not taking away from substance. It's all on the exact same level to them. It's all second nature. And that's where you really get into the auteur directors. And Wright is more than an auteur director. He's like the king of auteur directors. In, in our current age, I don't think there's anyone finer than him, him who can present an idea that he wrote, direct, designed everything. And that's a lot to really say about a dude who's really only directed, what, five, six films in total? Five? I think five, without checking IMDb. And he's, oh. I mean, he's managed to garner that level of just mastery. He's damn good. Then we all finally watch A Fistful of Fingers, and it's just dog shit. No, oh. that's actually online right now. I've been meaning to check it out. It, uh, anyway. Yeah, no, it's not. Early reviews, uh, early work, the reviews seem like they're positive. Like, obviously, it's someone who's just learning the craft, but I've heard good things. This is an interesting time capsule thing. So I think this is a good note to go out on, but uh, best credit ever, fitness instructor, in parentheses, 26. <laughs> I just think that was worth pointing out. That I can't end on a better note. So... Everyone, this has been Box Office Pulp. If you want to find more of us, we're on Facebook. Just search for Box Office Pulp. I don't think there's too many of us. You can find us on Twitter. I'm a little more proud of the Twitter than our actual content, which is weird, but check us out. We have an awesome, an objectively awesome Twitter account. I think our Twitter's pretty good. The four of us make a good Twitter. We do cool things on Twitter. We Talk don't to do us. That. Occasionally we, we shame Cody with polls about Godzilla. It's mostly that. It's just... We need to have another poll. Yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We're real proud of the Twitter. We'll respond to you on Twitter. Um, we are also on Stitcher. You can find us on uh, Blogspot. However you're listening to this, we're on iTunes. Maybe you're listening to us there. Give us a review. We would definitely appreciate it. Uh, it might be Blood Bond. I don't know. Can't hurt to try. You get a chunk of my soul. Maybe. And, and be sure to check out our other two monthly shows, Graphic Novelism and Supergirl Power Hour, all available on pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. Can it be our new advertisement that if you subscribe uh, to Box Office Pulp, you get a piece of Cody's soul? I don't need it. They can have it. Come on, folks. It can't hurt. At the best, you're getting part of my soul. At the worst, you wasted two seconds of your time. 
you should do it. See, I was actually the first person who got a piece of Cody's soul, and I'm actually going to do a live unboxing uh, right now. And uh, He got the biggest chunk. There's nothing in here. Yep, he got the biggest chunk. I feel like Cody's soul is like uh, the Japanese fubu fish. You have to cut very carefully or else <laughs> poison. And now whenever Cody goes up to a uh, door to grocery store, it doesn't open. And that's a Simpsons reference. Wait, no, no. You guys, you guys don't have that problem? I know when you uh, say God bless you when you sees that's uh, trying to stuff your soul back in. I'm just going to reference Simpsons. Uh, it's cool. All their soul-related material, which they have a lot of. I mean, this is Simpsons, so it's all good. Even the later stuff is still like, I'll laugh at that, but not in the same way. <laughs> anyways, That's what Cody thinks of the world's end. <laughs> anyways, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I hope you have a good night. Get the hell out of here, folks. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. The sad thing is, okay, so I just applied for a new license. Because in Minnesota, you have 60 days from the start of your residence to get a new license. So I technically started living here in the start of May. So I had till the start of July to get my new license. So I went down. You have to take a written test. I felt like a 16-year-old. I did it. I passed they took my real license and they had a giant stamp that cut into it and spelled the letters void over my Wisconsin <laughs> driver's license. They handed it back to me and said, okay, your real license will be in the mail in about six weeks. So I have this license with the words void, with the word void stamped into it that I have to present to grocers every time. I'm like, I would like a six pack, please. And they're like, mm, it says this is void. I'm like, sorry, let me dig out my goddamn passport card so I can buy beer. Well, it's not like you're not 27 anymore. I'm actually it's, turning an 27 in, what is today, 10 minutes to midnight. I have until Sunday before I hit 27. Aha, I'm technically older than you for a little while. That's weird. I'm the baby of the group, and I just never envisioned it that way. Yeah, you're, you're somehow the most put together of all of us, and yet you're the youngest. Yeah, it's funny, though, uh, in a sad way, I'm spending my birthday alone. Like, <laughs> like <Jesus>. me. <laughs> More so. Like, I'm going to be in my apartment. I'm going to drive back home from my visiting my family Saturday night and then just sit in my apartment alone until maybe one of my friends out west is like, you want to play video games? And that's, that's my Sunday. <laughs> Fuck it. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the <laughs> Greetings and salutations, kiddos. It's me, your old goblin in crime, Roderick Kingsley. Here with a special message for you, my adoring public. You may have noticed lately in my many, many appearances that I've had a bit of a spring in my pointy-booted step. No, boys and girls, the secret to my success is no wonder drug or miracle diet, but an elixir of the spirit. 
And, like a Halloween-themed Jehovah's Witness, I'm here to spread the good news like a bombardment of pumpkin bombs. The good news of graphic novelism. But, Uncle Hobgoblin, you ask? What is a graphic novelism? Don't ignore me, you little shit! But yes, the tenets of graphic novelism are quite simple. A love for the comic book form in all of its forms. A rejection of the complacency that keeps it from reaching further heights. And, most importantly, a refusal to fall into the dark pool of negativity that has strangled the life out of this culture for too long. Since becoming a devout graphic novelist, I've rebuilt my goblin game from the ground up, soaring high above my fears and insecurities, as though they were the skyline of New York City. And all you have to do to walk this path is look deep within yourself and send your credit card number care of Ronnie the OG Hobby at gobmail.com. Or if you want to be a total Norman about it, just listen to the Graphic Novelism Podcast, where Alex Cook, James Lewis, and Mike Napier preach their love for the medium and warn against those that may do it harm. Remember, ladies and gents, if you want to be the hobgoblin of whatever it is that you do, listen to Graphic Novelism. Subscribe to it on iTunes and The Stitcher. Leave a rating and a comment. Visit graphicnovelism.com. And for God's sake, kill Spider-Man! For another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>